Welcome to the Food Life Podcast. You are about to hear easy to prepare and fun to serve recipes plus cooking tips paired with real conversation about the issues we face every day. It's food and life. And now, here's your host, Donna Britt. If you follow this Food Life podcast on social media, you may have seen pictures and stories from my recent trip to New York City with my creative partner, Tambi Lane. One of the highlights of our visit was a dinner at the James Beard House. James Beard was born in Portland, Oregon in 1903. He moved to New York in the 30s with plans of being a singer and actor. When that didn't work out, he opened a catering company with a friend and then published his first cookbook in 1940, which put him on the culinary map. He started the James Beard Cooking School in the 50s. He wrote many more books. He became one of the early TV food personalities. And to say the least, James Beard inspired many. After his death in 1985, Julia Child and some of his other dear friends worked to buy and preserve his New York home at 167 West 12th Street in Greenwich Village. That's where we had the dinner, and it's now North America's only historic culinary center. It's a gathering place where all of us can now appreciate the talents of emerging and established chefs, featuring hundreds of dinners and events annually. The James Beard Foundation was established in his honor to provide culinary scholarships. There are also the annual James Beard Foundation Awards honoring chefs and other culinary professionals, including journalists and authors. The foundation now supports numerous impact programs as well, which revolve around everything from sustainability to women's leadership. The mission of the foundation to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders, making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. Their slogan, which I love, good food for good. Isabella Wojcik is the director of house programming and has been for 16 years. She's the one in charge of choosing the chefs that get to cook at the James Beard house. This is the second time I've had the pleasure of interviewing Isabella, the first time on my podcast. This conversation took place the morning after my dinner at the James Beard house, featuring chef Kathleen Blake, from the Rusty Spoon in Orlando, Florida. Kathleen's dinner was part of a series celebrating Women's History Month, featuring graduates from the Foundation's Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership Program. The dinner was amazing. The experience at the Beard House overall was a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Isabella is a wonderful storyteller. You'll hear us chatting about the Beard House and that dinner I got to enjoy. You'll also hear about her childhood dream, which she ended up letting go of. You'll get her pro tips for fast, nourishing family dinners, including the right salt to use. And you'll find out how food and food TV altered her rocky relationship with her father. I hope you enjoy Isabella's stories as much as I do. Thanks for listening. So, yeah, I just want to start by talking about the dinner, just because it was um, such a cool experience to be in, just to be in that house mm-hmm. and see all of James's cookbooks. Yeah. 
And although they're not his, so they're not. No, it's the we're setting the mood. Um, so just to remind you, I mean, he had a huge debt, and when he passed away with no heirs, everything was sold at auction. So his possessions, that floor that you experience, right? The Beard House is four right. stories. The first floor has kind of this front reception room. The kitchen is sort of sandwiched in the middle, and then the greenhouse room on the other side. So all of that is, you know, we envision it as sort of the public space, the reception space. But when he lived there, that was the cooking school, and it was the public space. Okay. So you would have been in the kitchen, the greenhouse room. I mean, at some point that was the garden because that is where the house ended um, and you can see the brick wall uh, and the balcony is really an outdoor balcony so at some point that that house that was uh, the continuation of the garden but in James Beard's time that garden was shortened the greenhouse enclosure was made and so when you took classes with him that's the room where you would have been gathering to taste everything to have a discussion uh, and the second floor was his floor through private space which was filled with possessions. I've seen some incredible images of just, um, you know, desks and chairs and sort of kimonos. And uh, there was some sort of, you know, a goddess statue and an antique sleigh, <laughs> you know, all these things. And then his bed was in the alcove by the window. So there wasn't like a separate bedroom. There wasn't a proper bed on the floor somewhere. It was in that alcove. So that was a private space that you would not have seen if you knew James Beard or if you were, you know, taking a class. Right. Um, but now that is the main dining room. But that downstairs is really a cool kind of place. So the cookbooks are really just collected through time. Right. You know, where it's a it's nice to fill those shelves. It's nice to have that feel. To me, the Beard House experience for chefs is obviously a stage. It's a rite of passage. It represents a lot of things in terms of professional accomplishment, personal sort of satisfaction. And because it's not something you do on your own, you do it with your team, your friends, your employees, former employees. There is a shared experience that I think stays with you that, that gives you a sense of, you know, I've arrived, I've accomplished something, I'm someone in the industry. From the diner's perspective, to me, when you dine there, it's more like a dinner party. It's not oh, like for sure. it's not like the restaurant, right? Not so at all. you will never experience, no matter who's cooking, you're, you're nev your experience will never be like that at their place, um, even if their kitchens are open. But at the same time, it's not like a catered event or a private event. It feels like a dinner party. You're seated yes. with strangers. You're hopefully you're making new friends, um, and that's kind of the vibe. And the and the books add to that sort of homey atmosphere. It, it totally was that vibe. And and I loved it, too, that um, Kathleen, the chef, came in after mm -hmm. and um, talked about just her her experience in a really down-to-earth way and introduced her team and people asked questions. And it was just really, really yeah. special. And, 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 you know, part of me was thinking, like, oh, it might be, it might feel uptight or stiff or pretentious mm -hmm. or overly fancy or whatever and um it wasn't like that at all i i felt i felt like i was going i was in my uncle's house or something <laughs> like that that was really great no you guys just do a great well job. your uncle's a great cook yeah no <laughs> kidding yes um so yeah it was just fantastic yeah. um and and i just love your energy that's why i wanted to talk to you more mm -hmm. and um of course talk about the the beard house and the foundation and the women's leadership program, which I think is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Kathleen was sharing some um, statistics last night about how many women are now in the culinary mm -hmm. world, but the how low the percentages of women who are head chefs or exec chefs, et cetera. And um, I just think what you're doing to promote yeah. um, women leadership is 
pretty cool. You know, we were we were initially um, the the thinking was brought to the forefront by one of our trustees, Rohini, um, who, who owns Vermilion Restaurant in Chicago, and um, I mean, she's both sort of a very fierce advocate of sort of opportunities for women and how can we help in that space, and really made us aware that we had some work to do, and it sort of has snowballed into this great um, energy, this great program, and this great sort of you know target area. So you know what you just said made me realize you know the conversation um, certainly is about how to get more women uh, involved in visible, but the bottom line is the bottom line, which is women need to be in ownership. Women need to own things because. Because that's the that's where the decisions are made with money. So until they're owning things, until they are in charge and making those ultimate decisions, just having women associated and being sort of the the faces of things, that's wonderful and that's great for that visibility and that awareness. But we can't really make that kind of systemic industry change until they're also in, you know, in, in positions of power. And that's true of women, but also women of color and and generally speaking, people of color. The other thing when I when I met you before and we were talking about um, comfort food mm-hmm. you're 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 Polish and you immigrated with your family and you were telling me about um, is it pierogies that yeah. you love <laughs> it's funny, it's funny. <laughs> I just had some last night because my mom was visiting a couple of days ago I had actually didn't see her she was babysitting and then she was just being mom like bringing laundry detergent and whatever else that she buys at bulk stores because we live in an apartment see I love that like and you're left- grown up and, and you're and, and my kids make fun of me you know they're in their 20s they're like Really, you're bringing me things, but you do it forever, right? Yeah, you do. Okay, anyway. You do, no. So I, I intend to be that kind of a mom. I, I mean, my son's 13. We're not quite there yet. But um, but for my mom, she always will drop off some Polish food. Mm. And so I was just having, I was home late last night. Everyone else had eaten and it just seemed like, what's in the fridge? And that wasn't just like, I should eat it because it's there. But also like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's raining. Like, I came home late. Like, mm-hmm. it's going to make me feel good. Yeah. My mommy loves <laughs> so me some True pierogi. to stereotype of <laughs> eating pierogi last night with some brown butter. <laughs> But that's fantastic. But I you guess. do. And, but you did say we also talked about mm-hmm. you do cook every day. And one of my, I guess, missions is that I just want people to realize that food is accessible. They can do it. They can make healthy, mm-hmm. nourishing food for themselves. And it doesn't have to be complicated and it doesn't have to take a long time. Um, so give me one of your throw together, easy, fast. Here's what I do when I get home late to feed my kids. Well, so to me, a pro tip is find a good jarred pasta sauce. Like don't Mm, just, mm -hmm. not the cheapest or not the most expensive, but the one that you think tastes the richest, the most sort of homemade. So it's that. And then I usually enhance it with maybe some sauteed onions um, and some garlic powder or, or fresh garlic. Sometimes I throw in a package of meat. And so that's my like fast bolognese without without spending Sunday hours making bolognese. Making your sauce, right. Um, you know, the oven is a wonderful, to me, a wonderful tool because everything that goes in kind of cooks itself, you know, roasts itself. So sheet pans, putting everything, you know, a bunch of vegetables on sheet pans and putting maybe starting off with like chicken thighs, chicken breasts, anything like that, tossed in olive oil, salt and pepper, put it in um, on a sheet pan, add some vegetables halfway through, and then you've got a whole meal that comes out on a sheet pan, and then you could just put it on the table on a trivet. You know, I have access to fresh fish, so that cooks in seven minutes, you know, tops and just a squirt of lemon juice. Um, So those are the kinds of things I make without really thinking too hard about dinner. To me, I'm a better cook following recipes, Mm -hmm. right? So, and I'm pretty good at figuring out, is this a good recipe? Is it trustworthy? And so 
I will pick out recipes and that's when I will appear to be this amazing cook. But my standard straightforward cooking is like the oven, you know, things that cook quickly, pork chops pan seared, chop up some apple or pear or any kind of fruit, you know, and I saute that like almost after the pork chops are almost there. I just throw them around, maybe a drizzle of maple syrup, maybe a splash of rum or bourbon if it's just like my husband and I, and then it seems magical, you know, and you sort of have a sauce, you've got some like fruit, and then all you need is uh, steamed broccoli or any other like quickly steamed green vegetable, you know, and you just drop a couple of drops of soy sauce or yuzu just to give it a little character without thinking much about it. And that's that's how I cook. I think I, I think sometimes people are afraid to um, or they don't know how to season their food. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And and uh, so I'm always encouraging those who are like, mm, and you never. It's just like, don't be taste it. Number one, you have to taste something. Right. And don't be afraid to put pepper on it or some salt or whatever you like, you know? I think I think that's that's a defining line uh, between professional and non-professional cooks is how much salt professional cooks use. And it's kosher salt or coarse salt. It's yeah. never the fine sand sort of, you know, powdery table salt. And I think that makes the difference is yeah. using coarse salt, not being afraid to salt things. And a little splash of lemon or a little acid, I think that's the other sort of professional side is you use those elements not to make like a lemon flavored thing or an or vinegary thing, but that little drop of acid brings out the flavors. And that's you kind of have to know those things uh, in order to have that come out, you know. And I don't know that um, home cooks necessarily always get that message. Right. Have you? Are, are you going to do a cookbook someday? Have you ever thought about doing that? Like have, putting it together? Would you want to? No. <laughs> Short answer, no. Um, from what? Well, one is just watching the how tortured and demanding the process is. Just just being aware of chefs that that do it. So just from hearing from others, no. Just just no. <laughs> um, and the other thing too is, you know, cookbooks are not just something that um, you get offered to do. It's such a challenging business. And I think publishers are at a position where they're trying to figure out what's going to sell. Uh, and I think those sort of vanity chef cookbooks that look beautiful on coffee tables, they're not really selling. So that's sort of out. And I think influencers are the next uh, sort of generation of cookbook authors because they have followings. They have a unique voice. Um, they're popular. So I feel like I don't I don't know what, you know, you know, what path would I be on to be offered a cookbook? But um no. <laughs> so what is something that you haven't done yet that you want to do in the culinary world or just in life in general? Oh, my God. What a great question. Um, so, you know, I was I had a very clear vision for wanting a restaurant uh, early on. And it had to do with, I think, you know, coming to this country when I was eight. And and that age, everything was sort of magical and happy. I think I was spared some of the pain and some of the hardship of being older and aware of what it means to leave your country or to have doubts about what you're doing. And I picked up the language without really knowing I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a native speaker. So I, you know, there are hardships of being like a kid growing up that we all share, but just this idea of my experience. So America was magical uh, and it felt like a big adventure. And pretty quickly I fell into 
you know, seeing some catering happen. And then in high school, I had a restaurant job. And that sort of crystallized this dream. And I think the restaurants, to me, represented both this family idea, sort of like we all come together, we're a family. Um, but it was the energy, the pace, the hum of a restaurant alive with diners eating. It was so joyful. Um, and I think, you know, what I was sensing is that idea of the joy that happens around food, around a table. Um, and I loved the restaurant industry. And so I had a very clear vision for one day I would have a restaurant. And I pursued both education, going to the hotel school, um, both my jobs trying to be sort of in the kitchen, staging, and then getting entry-level cooking jobs and kind of going up that ladder, never far, but just having enough professional kitchen to realize, well, I don't really want to be the chef of my own restaurant. I sort of want to be the personality of my own restaurant. So then switching to the front of house and getting that experience. So I ha had like a very clear vision for I'm collecting all of this experience that will one, one day enable me to have my own restaurant mm -hmm. and I'll know enough and I'll be ready. And then at some point I gave up that dream and it wasn't um, it wasn't anything dramatic. It was just I think I realized what it takes and I felt like I didn't want to do that in New York City. You know, it's daunting um, from all the different from all the different angles, from diners expectations to public criticism to the hardship of the lifestyle of cooking all those hours and the uncertainty of even staying in business long enough. Like all of that suddenly made me realize I don't want to own a restaurant. I want to be a regular in a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so then it's like, all right, now what? <laughs> You know, and my dream was so clear. Do you get clear. paid for being a regular? <laughs> um, well, maybe an influencer. I don't know. But um, but it was, I had such a clear vision. You know, I practically had my furniture picked out that when I decided, like, I'm honestly not interested in that, I was left with this, like, blank space of now what am I doing? And so luckily, uh, you know, one of the mentors I had uh, was Michael Ginor, and he's the founder of Hudson Valley Foie Gras, and basically saved my life from the, like, what am I doing now uh, by giving me an opportunity to come work for him. And Hudson Valley foie gras and foie gras at the time was just like the hottest ingredient. It had a cult following. Every chef felt like he or she needed, mostly he, but needed to have a signature foie gras dish. Um, so I came around at a time when it was like great to be in the foie gras business. <laughs> it was exciting. Um, and so for, you know, over three years, it was an opportunity to work with a lot of chefs through that particular ingredient, but also to go into cooking schools. I did a lot of events for James Beard Foundation. I had an early foot in the door there anyway with, you know, just odd jobs and volunteering in the kitchen that it suddenly became like, I'm the perfect person once an opportunity became available to be part of programming, to be part of sort of the culture of the foundation. So now that was 16 years ago. <laughs> so during that time, honestly, it's been a charmed life of opportunities to both you know, when chefs, so just speaking from my perspective right now as, as my job, right? So I get to invite chefs to cook at the Beard House and it's not a magic wand or only people I like. It's nothing personal, but it's about, you know, who you are right now cooking. What's your message? What's your food? But what's your community? What's your context? Mm -hmm. And, you know, how does that fit onto a James Beard House stage? And what will that experience be like? And I have to do that 200 times. But it's such a privilege, you know, that what I witness is chefs who who either aspire to cook there or have cooked there and want to sort of share that with a new team um, and just want to support us, want to be part of our mission. So I get to witness, you know, 
other people's sort of dreams kind of manifesting at the Beard House, which mm-hmm. is that never gets old. Um, it feels really special. And sure, it's just dinner, but it's so much more than just mm-hmm. dinner, right? So mm-hmm. there's that. But through my experiences, I've gotten to judge food competitions. I've gotten to travel to both either represent James Beard Foundation or in my sort of professional hat, I'm checking out food festivals. I'm meeting chefs. I'm looking at what is the dining scene of a particular town or place just so I'm familiar. I don't need to travel for my living, right? So it's not about I go, I taste, and if I think it's good enough, then I invite that to the Beard House because it's not restaurant criticism. Um, And it's not saying this is the best lamb in all the land. Um, It's really about the chefs and what they're doing and their stories and how does that translate to New York. But so what else could I do, right? I think I'm still waiting to decide what I want to do when I grow up. You know, it feels a bit like that. Um, I think, you know, I'm very much interested in learning, just learning. So where where can I learn more about this industry? The things that I haven't done are things like, you know, spend time on farms or with fishermen or go and have those kinds of experiences of what it's like to procure the food. So I've spent time in professional kitchens. I've certainly eaten in magnificent restaurants, and I'm happy to do that every day, you know, honestly. But I love having a family that also focuses me on what's important and allows me to prioritize. Uh, You know, life in New York City makes you feel like no matter what you're doing, you've missed everything else that you didn't do because you made that one decision. It just feels like when you commit to the one thing, Mm -hmm. you just hear about all the other things. So that's a little bit of like the FOMO of life in New York. And I don't want that to be my distraction. I don't want that to be the thing that guides me. Like I have to keep doing more and more and more. So I love having, uh, being a mom and having a family that forces me to prioritize like what's really important professionally and what's really important personally. I did once have a brief uh, sort of flirtation with being a professional hugger because I thought connecting to people kind of getting that sense of who they are, Mm -hmm. um, delivering a little bit of that like positive energy. Um, It's never inappropriate. It's never weird. It's like just a wonderful way to connect to somebody. And I was like, can I make money hugging people? And my friends were like, yeah, that's not, that doesn't doesn't sound good. (laughs) I'd be in for that. I would start that business with you. So um, is your son, uh, what's it, what is, does he care that you know all of this about food and that you're into food? Like, is he into it too? Or does he just thinking like, I'm hungry, what can I eat, mom? No, I think he's into it, but he, you know, he's a, he's, first of all, he's a guy and a jock and he's middle school, which is rough, mm-hmm. uh, just mm-hmm. coming out of eighth grade. <laughs> so it's not cool to sort of care, you right. know? Um, so I think he's having that teenage experience when he was much younger. He was at a nursery school near the Beard House. And so I would pick him up and then we'd go back to the Beard House. I'd introduce him to the chefs. He'd get a cookie inevitably. And it was exciting. And I (laughs) I do have envy speaking from that time when I really wanted a restaurant and I know what that sort of yearning was like. Um, I've always envied kids who grew up in restaurants. I know it's not ideal. You know, you you give up certain things, but this idea of you get this community, um, this exciting place that's sort of humming and thriving and just, you know, professional kitchens are not warm and fuzzy like a home kitchen uh it's more like an auto body shop you know there's stuff (laughs) happening it's a lot of metal and it's noisy but at the same time i think it's the people that make it interesting Mm -hmm. um and then there's yummy treats like wherever you look so i've always sort of had this fantasy like what's it like to have you know a kid where he or she has to come home and you know not home but like 
home to your restaurant home right. uh, and sort of do homework at one of the tables, you know, and helps out in the kitchen. I've always thought what a what a charmed life to sort of grow up that way. So so we experienced that early on when he was little. But then we live in Brooklyn. And so then then right. he was there. Um, so I will say that he now expresses very sort of particular preferences because I think some of it is you know, what his what his friends are like, like it's a lot of social pressures to be a certain way. And he sort of keeps throwing in my face like fast food is better because I just always cooked everything he ate. You know, there was never yeah. fast food. I, it just wasn't even it wasn't a like a righteous path. It was more like it wasn't even on the radar. It just wasn't on the radar, you know, and I think my friends are like, have you ever thought about ordering in a pizza? And it just dawned on me like, I don't think I've ever ordered in a pizza like his. He goes to people's houses and they order in a pizza. But I just I didn't even do that, you know? So, so now it's like, oh, I think I'll just go to, you know, this chain or whatever. So, but, <laughs> but he knows how to be in a restaurant. He knows how to eat. He happily orders off a menu and isn't nervous about liking it or not liking it. And one of my favorite stories, and I still don't understand why, he l- lifelong hates mushrooms. And I have snuck them into things and I've tested this theory with a variety of different mushrooms. And he's kindly each time, like, eaten a bite and told me like there's a mushroom in here and I'm just going <laughs> to remind you I don't like mushrooms. So so he's confident in that. But we were we were somewhere it was like a very farm to table restaurant. Everything was like grown on the premises and he wanted pasta. And the only pasta was fettuccine with wild mushrooms. And he decided to order it. And I said to him, listen, there's not much in this dish besides like herbs and olive oil, but it's really mushrooms and you don't like mushrooms. So there's not much there. And he's like, that's okay. I'll just, I'll eat around. It's like the love of pasta won over the mushrooms. <laughs> Give me the he, noodles. <laughs> which he totally like ignored. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> which I took home. And then, and this is my passive aggressive way of like, I'm not going to waste food and can't, like, are you, you know, do you really not like mushrooms? I stuck them back into like a, like a frittata breakfast sandwich burrito situation. <laughs> and he didn't say anything, but he had mushrooms again. <laughs> You know, I've just warmed up to mushrooms um, in recent years. I wasn't always a right. mushroom fan. But there was a really nice, last night, one of her dishes had this lovely big sliced mushroom that mm-hmm. was it was really good. Uh, it's really <laughs> delicious. So, um, so on the podcast, we talk about food a lot. And we also talk about life. Mm-hmm. And um, what's a hard thing that you've had to navigate through that... Um, that, that, is, that is an experience that you would want to share, like just something that you got through and it was just the healing power of love and family and food that got you through it and and that that's something that you are willing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Anything come to mind? Well, so there's there are a few things, actually. Um, the one that, I mean, it's been my relationship with my father. I'll mm-hmm. say that's the one. Uh, and of course, then my mom too. Um, but the one with my father was, I think, the most sort of, allowed me to grow, sort of change, you know, expanded my thinking. Um, It's been an interesting thing to witness. So I came to this country. I didn't know my father until I met him in this country. So he had come first. He had uh, opportunities to, I mean, we were living in Poland, right? So this was communist Poland 
in the 60s. He was a teacher at a trade school uh, on construction and was getting jobs, sort of, I guess, the, the there were opportunities to get construction jobs in Egypt and in Libya in those times, which tells me that it was cheaper to bring in Polish workers mm -hmm. than to hire locals. Right. Um, and the kind of construction that was being done was very basic, you know, basic structures, hospital schools, just housing units, things like that. So he would get a contract, be sent to on one of these projects for a few months and then come back to Poland and then, uh, you know, look for another contract like that. So he was he was doing that and then had heard he had family in Miami and sort of made that decision that he was going to try to get to America. So this was 1968. At some point, he made that decision and then left. And so that meant that hardship of going through Italy and Spain and Europe and getting to America and getting to Miami and learning that um, he did have relatives, but it was the gener like it was so many generations removed that they didn't really speak Polish. They didn't know who he was. He just didn't find family in Miami and ended up in New York. So at the same time, he made that decision to leave. My mom learned she was pregnant. And it's like, oh, great. He's gone and here I am. Uh, and so I was born in 1969. And then it was that process, my father kind of making that promise to send for my mom. And it took eight years. So I was eight to get a green card. And it was all just, you know, bureaucracy and the fact that he couldn't come back because he had left illegally. Finally, we had green cards and finally we got to America and I was eight. So that was the first time I met my father at the airport. And I'd never spoken to him. I mean, we didn't have a telephone growing up. So it was um, letters, photographs, you know, postcards, gifts, right? Just that in itself. Yeah, think about that. I mean, you know <laughs> what a, I mean? As an adult, like what yeah. that might be like. But so from my perspective, you know, my dad was a guy like in stories and the photographs were from Egypt and Libya. So it was like a man on a camel uh, or with Arabic writing. It seemed exotic and just like not meaningful at all to a kid. Like, okay, that's your father. So at the airport, it was just like this strange, like, okay, here he is, you know, and I, and he'd never had a child, like a baby in his life. And so I was the first, you know, thing. And he never had a baby. It was like an eight-year-old girl manifested. So we had a strained relationship early on because he wanted a son. He was like a burly construction guy, very rough, um, you know, an alcoholic, a chain smoker. And my mom was much more refined and intellectual. And I think for her, coming to America meant giving up this identity that she really enjoyed. And I've always felt sorry for her because what she had to, she gave up so much her life. to do this. Whereas like I didn't uh, and my father sort of had opportunities and, 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 and a betterment, which was not easy, of course. But that's that's, you know, she enjoyed, you know, the fact that for eight years he worked in America, sent dollars back and he was working construction. He was working in a factory that manufactured index cards, uh, manila folders like paper office goods. Um, so it was like an old fashioned like factory. So working with his hands, kind of very blue collar, but he was sending dollars back. And in communist Poland, you know, foreign currency was the only thing that gave you access to a better life because Polish money could only be used in like the state stores, which didn't have anything to offer. So foreign currency of any kind, including dollars, meant you got to go into like the foreign currency stores where it was Levi's jeans and Marlboro cigarettes and Jack Daniels or Johnny Walker, whatever. But it was like all of the luxury goods that were you know, American or foreign that gave you sort of a luxurious lifestyle, they were sold 
in these stores. And so my mom had access. She had a great independent job. She traveled a lot. My grandparents were raising me. Um, she was always present nights and weekends whenever she wasn't traveling. And so I don't feel like my mom wasn't there. She was very much a part of my life. But she was this beautiful, well-dressed woman with like fancy friends, you mm -hmm. know. And then we come to America. She doesn't speak the language. She can only get jobs sort of like in factories or cleaning houses. Um, so she's reduced to being a person that she's really not. But this is now her life in America. So she suffered greatly. I was eight. So it was an exciting adventure. And my relationship with my dad was sort of like, I don't know if I like him. I don't know him, you know, and he's not like fun, fun. And I'm a girl. Like, I don't know, you know, so that that's where we started. And he wanted, and I think my parents had that dream for me of being a doctor, a lawyer. Like they toiled. We all worked three jobs together so I could be a doctor, a lawyer in America. And I was not interested at all, even though I had great grades. But it was that interest in restaurants and people. One of my favorite memories is a place that we lived from the time I was in third grade. I mean, I arrived in third grade and it was shortly after. So maybe by the end of third grade through the first year of high school, we lived in a place called the Polish National Home. And it was essentially like a members club for the Polish community. Um, but they also had, you know, a bar, a billiard table, a TV, a cigarette machine. So the members could kind of hang out. And then they had three different sized rooms to rent for occasions and events. And so there's a big ballroom with a stage and a piano. And there are two smaller rooms. And we lived there. We had an apartment on top as the sort of supers. So while my parents worked their various factory jobs, they also were responsible for taking care of this place, which meant you know, I had odd jobs around the place, things like filling the cigarette machine with the cigarettes um, or, you know, clipping all the like the potato chip bags behind the bar or um, combining all the bottles, you know, all the half bottles of like Canadian club into one. <laughs> so it was just kind of being around a bar and then helping all the caterers coming and going, setting up, showing them where things were and just taking care of this place. So I grew up in this place that was just full of events. You know, I worked the coat room for every wedding and the ballroom was just a big square room and there's a window in one of the walls and it was just my window into their wedding you know into their festivities and so um, it was this really magical place right so that's that's you know very formative years and I started to be interested in food and cooking I got a restaurant job and it just sort of set me on this path to wanting to go to cooking school. And my parents were devastated. I mean, I don't even know how I <laughs> learned about cooking schools because this was the mid 80s and nobody talked about cooking schools. They're basically trade schools. It was interesting to be an immigrant, to be the only one of my friends interested in food and, and restaurants and wanting to go to cooking school. And I felt very isolated in that decision. Uh, and my parents were, of course, devastated that this is what was happening. They came all um, the way over here, sacrificed everything. Everything and you wanted to go to cooking. And school. it wasn't a noble profession <laughs> right. anywhere, not even in Poland. Right. You know, it was you would toil somewhere in basements in sort of medieval conditions like that was not a job you wanted uh, even there. You know, so so the compromise was to go pursue, uh, you know, hotel school and business school. And that's fine. And I did that. And then suddenly I was working in hotels and I didn't like doing that. But so this is a long winded to say, <laughs> uh, long winded way to say, you know, I was on a path my parents didn't understand. And my father especially could not relate to because cooking was sort of like what women did, you know, like he would come home and expect to be fed, expect a hot meal on the table. And I always joked with my mom that 
he could come home, sit at the table, and if dinner was on the stove, he'd starve to death. Because the <laughs> idea of like even crossing the kitchen to pick that up was beyond him, right? So it was always this running joke like, I mean, you practically have to feed the man, otherwise the poor thing would starve. So he really didn't understand. It was like beyond his conception what I was interested in. I go off you know, in my 20s, I leave high school, you know, I move out, I go to college, and then I'm on in 20s, I'm on this path, I'm working in restaurants. And my father discovered food television. Oh, yeah. And it was Martha Stewart, and it was Jacques Pepin, and it was a few other cooks. And suddenly this man, who didn't understand a thing about me, is interested in food for the first time. And the first... The first sort of like, this was a happy, joyful experience. But I just remember there's like this this line. One Thanksgiving, my mom was, and, and Thanksgiving was sort of like we adopted Thanksgiving, right? It's not mm -hmm. a Polish tradition right. in any way. And um, we always forgot the cranberry sauce <laughs> in the can, in the fridge, because we didn't even know you're supposed to eat it together. So we would buy it a couple of weeks before and then forget to put it on the table every year. We're like, oh, the, the you know, the cranberry sauce. So one year it was like, Stovetop potatoes because we thought they were better, like a like out of, you know, potato flakes out of a box, right. and like frozen broccoli with a cheese sauce, uh, which is delicious, but it is like from the bag, right? right? And the cranberry sauce from the can and the turkey, and the next year, my father is making like a leg of lamb and the turkey, <laughs> and he's made his own ice cream. He bought an ice cream machine, is making his own ice cream, and asked me if I could make a risotto. Like, <laughs> It was such a difference, you know, wow. just one year and his world being opened. And so we went from having a really hard, strained relationship where, you know, he um, he was never physically abusive, but very verbally abusive about, you know, how long I, you know, I was a grade A student. I loved studying. I loved school. And he thought that meant that I was slow and challenged because I spent so much time studying. Um, so it's that kind of not understanding and the fact that he seemed very disappointed in, in my career choices and just like my life path. And suddenly food becomes the mm. language wow. in which we can communicate. And I always thought my father was sort of this, you know, sort of like a not interesting, not intellectual, nothing going on upstairs kind of a guy. And my mom was clearly the like exotic, sort of European, well-traveled, beautifully together woman, the creative sort of energy. And I envisioned my parents in those roles and I kept them there. And it wasn't until um, later on after my father passed away, so I'll get to that point, that I realized my father was actually much more whimsical, mm. much more sort of an artist that didn't realize he was that. Like he was trapped doing construction. He was trapped sort of being obligated to be a certain way. He had come out of a very small village, you know, where alcoholism was rampant. Um, There's a lot of mental illness that ran on that side of the family. And I think he just didn't have a construct that would allow him to really be who, who he could be. So he was like what he was. And my mom was much more conservative in her thinking, much more sort of sensitive to public opinion and what's the right way to do things. I just didn't realize that what I loved about myself and how I viewed myself as this sort of like creative free spirit, like cuckoo bird, <laughs> um, that actually is all my father. You know, and I didn't recognize that until later. And so the painful sort of childhood high school memories get a little bit turned around when we start to kind of communicate through food. 
which then continued for the rest of his life. And then, you know, when he, Luca was probably five years old, he was diagnosed with cancer, hadn't suffered. It was just a very random thing. And then suddenly there he was with cancer. And six months later, he was gone. And he had never, my dad, didn't suffer. um, So that's lucky. And it seemed like a shame. Like the saddest thing about it all for me was that he really wouldn't experience my son beyond like the five years. Like he really just wouldn't see what what happened to him. And I felt terrible that he was really robbed of that. Like he didn't have that with me and he really wasn't going to have that with his grandson. And then the other thing is it, it felt like, you know, I think I was still holding on to resentment and anger And even though we had been getting along really well, it's like, do I love him? Do I miss him? Do I not? Like, I had to think about these feelings. And I just decided that what I needed to do was sort of forgive him, you know, for the way that he treated me, how he thought of me. I I can blame him for some things, but in the end, he, he did the best he could. And it was time. It was like time to just let it all go and sort of put the emotions away and just sort of see him clearly for who he was, you know, and sort of that, that is sort of life, food (laughs) and death (laughs) all in one, you know? Um, So it's been interesting. So now I have my mom and it's, it's a, an evolving relationship. (laughs) I am, you know, uh, (laughs) it is. I think um, the thing that I cannot learn that I continue to sort of not understand that I'm still not learning this is that she will not be different. I think I have these That's called great acceptance. Right. <laughs> I have these great expectations uh-huh. like, oh, she'll be like this yeah. and then we'll do this. And it just isn't. <laughs> and I keep trying over and over. So maybe maybe I'm not ready to learn that lesson yet. And maybe that's why I still have her in my life. And I love that. But she is also the person that um, has left me with some gifts and and one that I'm really proud of that's like small and silly, but but not so much that I remember even in school is willing to go out of your way for someone else. Just just there's there's no limit. Like the strain with my mom and I is that there's no limits to what I will do for you. <laughs> and that's a heavy burden. And she, you know, she does things like makes herself at comfortable in my home. She like rearranges things. She leaves her things like hidden so that they're not in my way and I don't get annoyed, but it's her things that are there. So it's a little like creeping into my life. But in her mind, it's that you will go to any distance to help your child, your neighbor, your friend. My son makes fun of me. If, if What was it? Something the other day. Um, and he said, oh, I like that, mom. And I go, oh, and usually if he said, oh, I like that, I was like, oh, here, do you want it? I mean, right. you know, I'll just take my shirt <laughs> off and give it to you. But there was something that I that we were talking about. And he sat there for a second. He goes, you, you mean you're not going to offer that to me? He goes, you always offer it to me. <laughs> but it's because I know how your mom feels. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, I'll do anything. And you it know, annoys and my kids, too. They get the super first, annoyed. So the first realization I had that I think was my, you know, growing up um, so from Poland to the suburbs of, you know, New York, Long Island. And I remember not being offered a ride home from a friend's mom because they lived like in the other direction, you know, half a mile. Yeah. And I lived in the other direction half a mile. So it wasn't really far. Right. But it was this idea like, oh, well, we're not going that way. So you can walk. Um and I remember thinking my mom would oh, drive yeah. the whole school home if allowed. Like she, th- nothing yes. was out of her way, you know. 
Uh, and even now, it's I like, like your mom. You know, I love my mom for that. <laughs> even now, it's like, oh, if you have to work late, even after midnight, I'm still going to come and I'll drive home at two in the morning because there's no traffic. I don't mind. So it's it's silly. But on the other hand, it's this generosity that I find is really important to have. And I think it's what you're, you know, there are so many interactions I have with people and I'm so judgmental in my mind, of course. <laughs> I try to be very polite outwardly, but in my mind. And I realize it comes down to the fact that they were not trained. They weren't given those opportunities that you can't always take it so personally about why don't they realize, don't they see, don't they know? Yeah. You know, I was really lucky to be instilled to have that instilled in me, that generosity, you know. So you get to pass it on. Exactly. It'll be annoying your son for the rest of his life going out of your way I think I'm to do guilting him, for him every step of the way. <laughs> but yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Ah, yeah. It's been an honor. Isabella Wojcik from the James Beard House in New York City. There is a bit more to our conversation, which you'll get to hear in our next episode, episode 10, Borders, Boundaries, and Braised Pork Bowl. Isabella will share her unique views on immigration, which I find especially poignant considering she herself is an immigrant. So I hope you'll join us for that one. See more, hear more, find out more as usual at foodlifepod.com and look for us on social media at foodlifepod. Thanks again. Talk to you next time. 